Corner Fringe Ministries presents a 12-part series on the divine nature of God. Please enjoy the study. We are in part five today of our study on the divine nature of God. And right off the bat, I want to begin today by proposing another argument by the Unitarian camp. And this is one that I haven't mentioned yet. I didn't get to it in week one. It's an argument that challenges the fact that Yeshua received worship in a religious context. In other words, Unitarians, they will challenge the fact that Yeshua was worshipped as God. Now let me be clear. Messianic Unitarians, Christian Unitarians alike, they believe, they confess, Yeshua was worshipped in the New Testament. That can't be refuted. That can't be disputed. It's clear. What they are disputing is that whether or not he was worshipped as God. That's what they are challenging. Let me explain why they don't believe that Yeshua was worshipped as God. Unitarians have done a little bit of homework. They've studied, they've analyzed the Greek text, the Greek word used for worship. And what they are proposing is that this Greek word that we find actually being used of Yeshua in the New Testament, this word worship in the Greek, it doesn't refer to religious context or religious worship. Yeshua wasn't being worshipped as God. But rather, they believe Yeshua was actually receiving a worship that we find King David received, or a worship that we find his son Solomon received. Now, I want to give you an example of how this works from a Unitarian perspective. And you need to pay close attention because you need to understand this. You need to get your arms wrapped around this because the name of our Lord depends on it and who he is and what he stands for. Matthew 8, verse 1. When he had come down, meaning Yeshua, from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, the Greek word in this passage used for worship is, in fact, proskaneo. Proskaneo simply means to worship or to do obeisance to, to bow the knee. And here's how the Unitarians will argue their point. They're going to take you back to the Old Testament, more specifically to the Greek Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh. And Unitarians are going to show you that this proskuneo is the very word that is being used in regard to Abigail and David. In other words, what Abigail gave to David. Now look at this, 1 Samuel 25, verse 23, it says, Now when Abigail saw David, she hastened to dismount from the donkey, fell on her face before David, and bowed down to the ground. Vatishtahu in the Hebrew, but in the Greek, proskuneo. In the Greek Septuagint, it is proskaneo. So the argument is that this is the worship that is being given to Yeshua in the New Testament. The very same worship that we see Abigail giving to King David. Let me give you another example. And, and this is actually one that I've dealt with firsthand. Um, this one seems to be pretty common. It's a passage found in 1 Chronicles 29, verse 20. And it says, Then David said to all the assembly, Now bless the Lord your God. So all the assembly blessed the Lord God of their fathers, bowed their heads, and prostrated themselves before the Lord and the king. 
Now, if you look, the very word being used here in the Greek is the very word we find being used of Yeshua in the New Testament, where it's, and they prostrated themselves, proskuneo, before who? Yahweh and the king. All right? So from a Unitarian perspective, from their viewpoint, Yeshua received proskuneo the exact same way that Solomon received proskuneo, as we've seen here in Chronicles 29. And as we've seen in 1 Samuel 25 of David, in that exact same manner, that's the argument. The problem is, and there are several problems with this, but the problem is when you try to apply this to Yeshua in the New Testament, it doesn't work. It doesn't work because we find the Greek word proskuneo is actually used exclusively, explicitly in a religious context. So the whole basis of this argument of this whole worship thing and how they're trying to justify that Yeshua wasn't worshipped as God, the whole basis of it relies upon our understanding of proskuneo. To Unitarians, proskuneo was only reserved, it's something that you could give both to God and to the king. Well, let me refute that argument by taking you to the New Testament and show you how proskuneo is used. Revelation 19.9. Then he said to me, Write, blessed are those who, call, who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. Proskuneo. But he said to me, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Yeshua. Worship God. Proskuneo. Elohim. Theos in here. For the testimony of Yeshua is the spirit of prophecy. So here we have, literally, John Revelator, he's falling down at the feet of, uh, of the angel, willing to give proskuneo to him. The angel refuses proskuneo. He refuses that worship. Furthermore, he goes on to say, give that only to God. The point here is that proskuneo is, in fact, used in a religious context, explicitly. Let me give you another example. We fast forward a couple chapters. John tries to do it again. Now I, John, saw and heard these things, and when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship. Proskuneo. Before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. And then he said to me, See that you do not do that, for I am your fellow servant, and of your brethren the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book. Proskuneo theos. Worship God. Again, we find this word used explicitly in a religious context. The angel, once again, refuses it. He refuses to accept it. He refuses the worship and furthermore adds worship only God. I want to give you one more example of this. And in this example, we're actually going to find Cornelius. He is called for Peter. Remember, Cornelius is a Gentile. This is early on in the first century church. And the Gentiles were not... Uh, uh, coming together with Jews quite yet. And uh, he gets this um, vision. He calls for Peter. He sends three men to him. Peter has that wild vision of the sheep coming down three times with all these unclean animals on it. Next thing you know, Peter goes to his door and there's three Gentiles. So you can see the connection of this. He the dots himself. So what he did is he actually goes with these men, something he would not have normally have done, goes with these men, and he arrives at Cornelius' house and look at what happens. Acts 10.24. And the following day they entered Caesarea and Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. 
As Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. This is Cornelius worshipping Peter, giving him proskuneo. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I myself am also a man. So the argument that proskuneo doesn't refer to religious worship, it doesn't hold up to the smell test. The farther we go into Scripture, we find that this is a worship that is exclusive. And this is the word that is being used, the very same word, proskuneo, as that we see in the Old Testament. So the argument doesn't work. All right? Now, after showing you several passages where men are warned not to give proskuneo to anyone but God, I want to show you some passages where we find Yeshua literally receiving worship. And what's so interesting uh, to me is that from the moment of his, his incarnation, the moment that the Logos was made flesh, the Word was made flesh, we find Yeshua receiving worship. This is amazing. We'll go to Matthew 2, verse 1. And it says this, Now after Yeshua was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. And we drop down to verse 11. And when they had come into the house, saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now this is amazing because, number one, you know right off the bat that this is divine and heavenly. What did the Magi say? We have saw his star, his star. This is divine. This is a divine appointment. What they're coming to do is divine and heavenly. We have saw his star in these and have come to worship him. Upon arrival, keep in mind, Yeshua was just born. We have an infant child. Upon arrival, they fall down before an infant child and worship him. I challenge you, do your study in biblical history. Look through the Bible. Find me one example where an infant was born into the kingship of Israel. You will not find it. Let me give you an example. You, here you had Saul. He was what? He was called. David was born, yes, but he wasn't king. He wasn't born the king. He was called to be king, right? And all of his children assumed the throne how? Upon the death of their father. That's how they assumed the role. So the child was given that kingship by typically by the death of his father. That's typically. Here we find Yeshua coming as an infant, being declared the king of the Jews, the king of Israel. Very unique. You'll never find this because Yeshua himself is that unique. The other thing is, is and I, I mentioned this several times in some of my other studies, but just look at what these magi did. The gifts that they had given signified who the child was. Gifts of gold. The gold represents his kingship, his purity. You have the frankincense. That represents the Kohen Gadol, the high priest. And then you had the myrrh. That was the element used in burial at the time of Yeshua, stating what he came to do. This king, the Mashiach ben David, came to die for the sins of Israel. 
So we have to ask ourselves, biblically speaking, from the beginning of the creation of the world, have we ever seen anything like this? The answer is no. From the very moment Yeshua came into the world, he was truly worshipped in a religious context. And we find that he was worshipped in this manner all the way throughout the New Testament. Let me give you another example. If we go to the Gospel of John, we find that Yeshua, in chapter 9, he heals a man who has been born blind from birth. And by him doing this, this created quite a ruckus amongst the uh, Jewish leaders of his day. And they called this man into questioning. They were grilling him. Uh, they actually called this man a sinner, uh, referring to Yeshua, and wanted him to confess the same. And actually, they get so frustrated with him because he begins teaching them. <laughs> it's so, it's an it's a absolutely funny story. They cast him out. They cast him out of their presence. And listen to what happens in John 9, verse 35. Yeshua heard that they had put him out, and finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Now, what's interesting here is the use of terminology. And I just want to point this out. I don't want to rabbit trail too far. But I do want to point this out. It's, I find it su super interesting that he utilizes this term. You know, Yeshua calls himself a lot of things. He calls himself the Son of God. He calls himself the Light of the World. The Lamb of God, right? He's all these things. But to this man, he identifies himself as the Son of Man. The Son of Man, you will find if you go to the Tanakh, that this is a term that is common as far as found in Ezekiel, of Ezekiel the prophet. In other words, it represents a man who is a prophet. It's a term for a prophet. Okay? And what's so fascinating is when, these, when this guy is being grilled by the leadership, and he's asked, who do you say that he is? He responded, he's a prophet. But there's something even more fascinating, I think, if we dig a little bit deeper about this Son of Man statement. We find the statement in another book, in the book of Daniel. And it's used exclusively to refer to the Mashiach coming on the clouds of heaven. Okay? So now he goes on in verse 36, and he answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe him? I want, you, I want to stop here in verse 36. Do you see the willingness of this man? He has cast all his care, he's put all his chips in on Yeshua. Do you see that? Where is he? He's just asking. You, you tell me where he is, and I'll believe. Where is he? Verse 37, Yeshua said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. He worshipped him without hesitation. I mean, look at this. And when you consider, why is he so prone, without thinking, without hesitation, just to give him worship? Consider this passage, Psalm 146, verse 7. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. Yahweh opens the eyes of the blind. I, don't, I do not question why this man put all his chips in with Yeshua. And when he said, Yeshua said, I'm the man, that he fell down and he worshipped. The man knew, he knew who opens the eyes of the blind. It is Yahweh. Let me give you another example. And in this example, we're actually going to find a very specific proclamation being made. One that is so explicit and direct that it leaves nothing to be debated. 
This is, this is the Achilles heel for the Unitarians uh, concerning, uh, concerning the deity of Yeshua. Now, we find this example in John chapter 20. Yeshua has risen from the dead, and we find out that not all his apostles actually believe that he is actually risen. And John 20 verse 24 says, Now Thomas called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Yeshua came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. He said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print and put my hand in I will not believe. I want to stop here. Someone bring me up a new battery because this thing's dying. I apologize about that. Verse 26. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Yeshua came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here, look at my hands, and reach your hand here, and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Verse 28. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. Thomas had a serious revelation here, right at this moment, of who Yeshua really was. He is both Lord and God. Now, very important what comes next. How does Yeshua respond to this statement? I mean, does he correct Thomas? Like Peter corrected Cornelius, stand up. No, 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 no. I will not receive that. Stand up, I am a man as you are. Does he do what the angel did to John the Revelator? Does he tell him, no, worship only God? He doesn't do that. Pardon me for a second. Thank you. Thank you, Sean. I think that was the problem. I could be wrong. All right, I've been wrong before. Just talk to my wife. <laughs> so here we have Thomas receives an amazing revelation here. My Lord and my God. And Yeshua, the response by him is so important. Because as I was saying, does he respond like the angel? Does he respond like Peter? How does he respond? He says this in verse 29. Yeshua said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Believed what? My Lord and my God. Think about that for a second. Believe what? What is it that he believed? It was his confession. His confession, his declaration to Yeshua is, you are my Lord and my God. And Yeshua's response, blessed are those who have not seen and have believed what he believed. That he is both Lord and and God. Let me give you another example. Let's go further. Again, this is after his resurrection. Yeshua states the following to his disciples found in Luke 24, verse 49. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. There's that priestly blessing. This is Yeshua, our Kohen Gadol, giving that blessing, raising his hands, right? Verse 51, Now it came to pass, when he blessed them, 
that he parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Now this is pretty amazing. You have Yeshua, literally, he's ascending into heaven, right? And what do they do? They worship him as he's ascending into heaven. This is none other than truly divine worship in a religious context. This is heavenly worship, all right? Just think about it. Who's ever heard of such a thing? He is ascending into heaven. What did it prompt them to do? Worship him. What did we find Manoah and his wife doing? When they saw the angel go into the midst of the flame of the offering and ascend, they fell on their faces. They fell down. Later on, Manoah stating, we have seen God face to face. We're going to die. We've seen God. I think that's amazing. What we have here is heavenly worship. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews has to say regarding the worship that Yeshua received. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. This is the Father speaking, okay? And, and again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be my son. This is the relationship between the Father and the Son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. Firstborn meaning Yeshua. We find out in Colossians chapter 1, he's actually called the firstborn of the dead. And here we have the command, let all the angels, the host of heaven, the host of heaven are to come and worship him. You know, it's one thing for man to pay reverence to both the king and to God. I get that. It's entirely a different matter when we have angels of God worshiping Yeshua. This is divine worship. This is heavenly worship. Amen? The same glory that is given to the Son, we find being given to the Father. The same glory that's given to the Father, we find being given to the Son. Let me give you another example of this heavenly worship that is given to Yeshua. Revelation chapter 5. Then I looked and I heard a voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Verse 13, and every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth, such as in the sea and all that is in them, I heard saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Blessing, honor, glory, and power to God the Father and to the Lamb, to his Son. He receives the exact same blessing, the exact same honor and glory that his father receives. And notice, did you notice? It's every creature in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. The psalmist makes that at the, the last psalm, the last verse in the psalms. So at 150, the very last verse says, Let everything that has breath praise Yahweh. And that's exactly what you're seeing here. Everything that has breath, blessing, honor, glory, and power to both the Father and the Lamb. Let me move forward a couple chapters. 
in Revelation, because I want to point out something else in regard to Yeshua. It's very important. Revelation 7, verse 13, it says, Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who came out of the great tribulation and washed the robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will dwell among them. Verse 16. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is fascinating. I want to draw your attention to exactly where the Lamb is in this passage. Literally in the midst of the throne. In the Greek, the mesos means center. That's where we get that term mesothelioma. All that asbestos works to the center of the lung. He is in the center. This is important to note, especially when we are seeking to identify exactly who Yeshua is. Right? If you want to identify who he is, I think it's pretty important to note the position or the seat that he sits in. Now, the first thing we need to establish is what throne is being spoken of here, right? I mean, could we be talking about another throne? Sure, it's possible. What throne are we talking about here? Well, if we fast forward to Revelation chapter 12, we find out exactly what throne it is here. Revelation 12, verse 3, this is a prophecy of the coming of of the Mashiach, Yeshua, in the, as far as the Word becoming flesh, His first coming. Another sign appeared in heaven, Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven. This is referring to Lucifer, to Satan. And threw them to the earth. He took a third of heaven with him. A third of the angels. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth, to devour her child. As soon as it was born, she bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. So what throne are we talking about? What throne did Yeshua get caught up to? The throne of God. Now, there's some fascinating imagery that I want to bring to light, which, you know, we actually derive from the Tanakh. We're going to derive this imagery directly from the Tanakh regarding the throne of God. Now I want to show you this because within this imagery, we're going to be given different images or different pictures of Yeshua. And what's so interesting is that we find these imageries or these pictures in the Ark of the Covenant. What you are looking at is the throne of God. If you read the writer of Hebrews, and if you even read Exodus 25, you realize that everything that Moses made in the tabernacle was a copy of the heavenly. It was, it was a copy. You are looking at the throne of God. Understand the gravity of the situation. The Ark of the Covenant is the throne of God. What you have here, I don't think my laser is going to work, but oh, there it is. First thing to know is you have this box here, the Ark. And on top of it, peace right here, along with the carabim, the two angels, 
This is called the mercy seat. This is called the mercy seat. Now what's fascinating is when you go to Scripture, you read time and time again, over and over, Psalm 80, Psalm 99, the Lord, Yahweh, dwells between the cherubim. This is literally the throne of God, the mercy seat. And this is where God appeared to Moses. He said, I will appear to you, I will speak from you between the cherubim, above the mercy seat. Something else I want to draw your attention to. And that is, in here, here you have the throne of God, right here. In here, the tablets of the testimony were put. Very significant. The tablets of the testimony in Psalm 119, 172, all your commandments are righteousness. Right? All your commandments are righteousness. The commandments of God are righteousness. What does Paul call Yeshua? He calls him the righteousness of God. All right? Here, we literally have our first picture, our first image of Yeshua in the midst of the throne. I also want to bring to your attention the following verse. Psalm 89, verse 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face. Quite literally, the commandments, the personality of our God, literally being in the ark is the foundation of his throne. And here we have the righteousness of God. The tablet sitting there at the foundation of the throne. I think that's pretty amazing. And it is a picture of Yeshua. Now, let me say this. The tablets of the testimony were not the only objects found at the throne of God. If we read the commentary by the writer of Hebrews, we find out the following. Hebrews 9, verse 1. Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and earthly sanctuary, for a tabernacle was prepared, a first part, in which was the lampstand, the table, the showbread, which is called the sanctuary, or we commonly call it the holy place. Okay? Verse 3. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all, or what we call holy of holies. Verse 4, which had the golden censer, which you've seen that priest had uh, before the ark, that the incense arose, and the ark of the covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. So we see that there were other items that were actually placed in the ark in addition to the righteousness of God, the, the tablets of the testimony. The first item we'll mention here is Aaron's rod that budded. I want you to think about this for a second. You have a branch that's dead, clearly, and yet it gave life. It came to life. It budded. I mean, you want to talk about an exact imagery of the Lord Yeshua being the firstborn from the dead. Though he died, he is alive forevermore. He's literally the image of Aaron's rod that budded. Another fascinating fact is that the prophets, both Isaiah and Jeremiah, they called the Mashiach the branch. Okay? Zamach or Netzer. They call him the branch. You'll find that Amos testifies that this branch of David, the Mashiach ben David, would fall. The fallen tabernacle of David. And then it would be rised up. I mean, these are all fascinating. Something else that is also fascinating regarding 
Aaron's rod that budded is the reason why that rod was placed at the throne of God. It was placed as a testimony against the rebellious. Also fascinating, we find that the tablets of the testimony did the same thing and does the same thing. It is a testimony against the rebellious. Then we have this golden pot with manna that was literally kept at the throne of God. Now, I want to remind you of something. Manna was the bread from heaven. God rained down manna from heaven and literally sustained his children with this bread. There are so many different rabbinic commentaries that you can read on this that are fascinating, but a lot of rabbis all say the same word, a descriptive word. It's very important. They call it spiritual food. So in the Jewish mind, they see the manna that was sent from heaven as spiritual. It's spiritual food. All right? Well, this is fascinating when you consider Yeshua is the bread from heaven. Look at this, John 6, 33. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He's the bread from heaven. Yeshua's trying to open their minds here into who he is. He's revealing himself. Verse 41. The Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. Something that's so fascinating to me here is that it states they complained about him. Do you remember reading through Torah? This bread came down. What was the first thing that they, they called it? They called it man. It's called man in the Hebrew. It means what? What is it? Or whatness? They didn't know what it was. Yeshua, the bread from heaven, they didn't know who he was. The other thing is, is what do they say? It says they complained about him. So fascinating they complained about the manna that, were, that was given to them by God. Our soul loathes this worthless bread, they say in Numbers 21. And here you see the symmetries are eerie. They complained about the manna from heaven the first time. They're complaining about the manna from heaven the second time. Now we move on to verse 48. Yeshua says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. So he's drawn the parallel. He's bringing them back to show who he is. They ate the man in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. So the pot of manna, the Aaron's rod that budded, the tablets of the testimony. All of these things are found at the throne of God and all of these things are representative of our Lord Yeshua. Every single one of them. I'm going to close with this passage in regard to where the Lamb sits. Revelation 22, verse 1. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. I can't emphasize this enough. John saw it for what it was. The throne of God and of the Lamb. And yet, what do we know? God will not give his glory to another. He will not. And yet, we see his son receiving the same glory, honor, power. The same blessing that his father receives. Verse 2. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was a tree of life who bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree 
were for the healing of the nations, and there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him. I want you to think about this. The throne of the God, there's one throne, God and the Lamb, and the servants shall serve Him. That is just an amazing picture of when we see Yeshua making the statement that I and my Father are one. Amen? Shabbat Shalom.